Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast, brought to you by Source from Sound Agriculture. I'm McCain Vogel, Assistant Editor at Cover Crop Strategies. In this episode, listen to Gary Zimmer giving a presentation at his farm in Spring Green, Wisconsin. Zimmer, who many refer to as the father of biological farming, talks about his farmer origin story and why rye is so important in keeping his soil covered. I'm Gary Zimmer, and I don't know if anybody's familiar with what I've been involved with. We moved here in 1979. I'm a dairy nutritionist by training, and I got introduced to soils teaching at a technical college in Minnesota. And then I wanted to, I started consulting, and then I wanted to have a farm of my own because I couldn't get the products I wanted to fix the soil. And so uh, Midwestern BioEgg is a company I started with a couple other people, and I think we need the credit for taking dairy nutrition back to the soils and to say what you put on your land is going to affect the feed and it's going to affect the cows. Well, that got into almost everything else you could possibly do, and so that's what really started it. And so then uh, we moved here in 1979 because I wanted to have a farm of my own. I said I, I wanted to be able to do some trials and demonstrations, and farmers weren't, you know, they were busy farming their farm, and I couldn't get them to collect data. I couldn't get them to do things I wanted to do, so we bought a farm. It was just a hobby farm, and then I bought a research farm in 1991, and then my uh, son was 13 years old, and he started working on the farm. When he was 16 years old, the farm came up for sale across the road, and he said, I want to buy the farm, and I want to milk cows. And I said, wow. Uh, I forced him to go to college. I forced him to do all those things which he didn't really want to do. And so uh, he's been farming. He's, uh, he's now 45 years old. He's been farming for almost 30 years, and he's only 45 years old. But I was uh, teaching at the tech school in Minnesota, and I realized that what happened is when he bought the first farm, I had a co-sign on the first one, but he owns all those farms, and my daughter owns a couple of farms. I don't own them because I saw families all fall apart. If he's going to do all the work, he needs to own the farm, first of all, and then he's got his skin in the game, so it was quite fortunate. Uh, so in the beginning, then, we were dairy farms, and we had 300 cows, and we actually had uh, 600 acres. Well, then uh, he was getting burned out and having a hard time getting help, and we had to depend upon all this help. And he was—he never married. He married all these farms. He's uh, so he was 24/7 on the farms, kind of. And so I finally said to him, he was kind of struggling mentally, I thought. And so I said, "Look, life's too short. You don't need to do this anymore." So he sold the farm, the cows, to my daughter, and she cut the herd down to 150, and then we started cash cropping. We started here in the 90s on Taliesin because uh, I was here and we got involved in trying to transition Taliesin to an organic. There was going to be a cooking school there at one time with Odessa Piper and some other people, uh, Carla Wright, we're going to do this cooking school here. So I got involved with Richard DeWild and Harmony Valley Farms and transitioning it to organic. Well, that all fell apart, but we kept on the farm. And so then I got on the board at Taliesin to try to promote agritourism. And that never, well, I was nine years on the board, and I never, I, my job was to restore Midway. And if you notice, nothing's been done to Midway yet. I was promised that the machine shed is going to be built this year. And so uh, it was a struggle away because they're an architectural school. So anyway, we, I got on the board, and well, then this farm came up for sale, and uh, I wanted to put conservation easements on it. Well, I couldn't get the board. It had 20 people involved. It was only on the market for 24 hours, and I bought it. And I put conservation easements on it. There's some beautiful building sites on this farm that hopefully will never get built. And so then Patrick, my wife's grandnephew, her, his father bought my business the first round with a bunch of investors. And so he moved in here, Los Angeles kid, and got onto the farm. And so then some of the issues came about. And now I said, we farm, my son farms, uh, so things kept transitioning. We used to be corn, beans, hay, and, all, and dairy and all that. And right now we're down to two crops. We do one year rye and one year corn. 
And it's the most incredible farming system we've ever seen. I got about three other people doing it now. Yeah, so it's a, uh, so well, Margaret deserves credit for starting Sustainable Ag. That was her big project, if I remember right. Did I get that right? There's a lot of people engaged in Sustainable Ag. I've been involved in it for my career. Forever. <laughs> I, I think if you bring up her name from back 30 years ago, it, that was really, it was her her thing that really drove sustainable life. But see, we didn't understand what sustainable is. See, now we got to regenerate it before we can sustain it. And I called the farming biological because I wanted focus the people to focus on life in the soil. And so regenerative has a really, it depends who you talk to, what it means. I was just over in Europe and at a big conference in Poland, and uh, they don't want to use the word regenerative. They were all the food companies. You can't believe what's happening in the world. The food companies are putting pressure on the farmers, not the small farmers. The farm I was on, one farm was 200,000 acres and the other one was 30,000 acres of vegetables. And oh my gosh, the pressure from Nestle's and all these companies, they're gonna to have to become regenerative. Now, if they started out moldboard plowing and destroying the land, any improvement they make gives them a, a feather in their hat. Well, if they're already doing this thing, there'll be a guy coming to our training we're doing here with Acres in, in August from England, and uh, he's a biologist, and uh, they all cover crops. It's unbelievable what they do under 30,000 acres, but they gotta clean it up. They want Consumers want clean air, clean water, and clean food. They don't necessarily need to be organic, but they better have they better clean up their act. And so it was an unbelievable conference. It's a first international conference on bioreaction, they called it, because they want farmers to take action. And so whether you, so the word regenerative, I understand, see the word sustainable. I can honestly say that we spent a lot of time on this 1,500 acres my son, my family farms, of fixing land, growing cover crops, remineralizing it. Now, the Savannians who bought a farm just north of Spring Green, my son farms alone with a little part-time help on 1,500 acres in a 50-mile circle. We farm from Highland to north of Spring Green. If you got in a car and went and visit all our farms, you'll put on 50 miles. And so he's all alone. He's, we're going to be combining rye there. So that land in Spring Green, we're transitioning to organic. It's 100 acres we took on. And uh, so the first thing we do is take a soil test and we remineralize it. We spend $1,000 an acre fixing the land before we farm it organically. Now, everybody said, oh my gosh, well, we farm 1,500 acres and that's another 100 there. So $100,000 we'll have invested before we make one nickel off the farm. So now we're combining rye over there that goes to uh, cover our seed cost. That goes to, that's not organic. And then, so then, and, and the next year it'll be organic, but it's not fixed yet, it'll probably take quite a while to fix soil. So I'd say five years minimum, depends on how aggressive you want to get at it. So anyway, this farming system is, first of all, low labor intensive. We no longer buy any fertilizer once it's fixed. And so now we are sustainable. And so it's all cover crops, and it's one year rye cover crops and one year corn. And so the farming system, although I own Midwestern Bioag, I've sold out now, but uh, all those years about remineralizing soils, but see, this farm is not uh, probably, you could drive for higher yields. I could be foliar feeding, I could put starter fertilizers on. We do nothing. And only minerals they could put on back on the land come through compost. All the corn is sold, most of the corn is sold, to Phil's Organic Eggs and Spring Green. And we get all the manure back. So the manure is even organic that comes on this farm. And then we compost that. And the reason we compost it is because if you look at our farms, we've got uh, gypsum weed got scattered all over our farms. And we're pretty convinced it came through manure because we had no other inputs. And so now everything is composted. And what we do for composting is really interesting. We make hay off of our pastures. You see, when the organic dairy farm, we had to graze the cows. And so we had to have 150 acres they had to graze 150 days, rather. So we had 100 acres of creek bottom pasture. 
Well, if you're organic, I said, organic is not a nutrient management plan, by the way, folks, because we grazed them on that pasture all the time, fed them in a barn and grazed them on. What do you think happened to the nutrient level of the pastures? Because the cows are out there all the time. And so now I've got all those minerals on that pasture, and we've got about 40 acres that we actually cut, bale, bring it back, and that's the base to make our compost along with the chicken manure. And so I don't have our compost. I got some samples of last year's compost. We don't have it made yet this year because it's in windrows, it's in piles. And right now, because my son, when the cultivating is done, when the rye is harvested, he'll start turning it, and we spread it in September. We don't put any nutrients on bare ground. That's all spread in the fall on a green-growing cover crop. So we're going to take a walk. It's about a half-mile hike, and hopefully you're all up for that. And we'll look at our crops. I want to show you the rye. I want to show you how we farm. I want to show you some of the special things. So we'll take you through the farming system. I'll wait till you get here, but this was rye last year with cover crops. So then we let the cover crops grow and then I'll show you how we take care of it. Now it's really interesting. So we take our tillage to a shallow incorporate residue. See, I'm not a, I'm a believer in that. I'm a after, if I could rename my business, which I named 40 years ago, Midwestern Bioag, it would be named based on soil health and soil fertility. Soil health has certain guidelines, like no crust on top of the soil, variety of plants, all these different kind of things. And soil fertility, people don't understand what soil fertility is. We dump land fertilizer on the land and we call that fertility. No, fertility is the exchange of nutrients and it gotta be in a carbon biological cycle. So instead of, see, I wanna have it so you can't put, I said the dumbest idea man ever came up with, put all the nutrients in solution and dump on the land and then wonder how they got in our water. We just put them in solution for crying out loud. Why don't you hook them to a carbon source? Why don't you get them in a cover crop? Why don't you get them with some hue Why don't you get them in your compost pile? That's why all our minerals didn't go into the compost pile because the double mineral out here, nutrient use efficiency is a new topic in agriculture. Nutrient use, we're talking about uh, phosphorus anywhere from five to 30% usable that the farmer buys. And that's why they're talking about regenerating. You go to a farm that's been dumping all of that commercial fertilizer for years, they got a reserve out here. Now tap into that reserve. You can't go to a rundown piece of land except to regenerate it by not putting on minerals. So this is really kind of interesting. We got big buffalo color. You see the weeds are right down the middle of the row. That's another free green manure crop. My son will be through here with the big old buffalo cultivator here. I, it dries off. He's got, it was a little bit wet. So anyway, this will be able to get cleaned up. But see, then he'll go through this. Almost getting a little too big to go through. But it, you know, the drought really hurt it here. It got really set back. So normally we we take uh, two tillage passes with our in the springtime. We take down the cover crop. We got a big lemkin disc. And then we follow that with this Coon Krause interceptor. And then, so that would normally be our plan. And then we got, there's so many residues on top that we got row cleaners on our planter and we plant in kind of these furrows. And then uh, we come along and rotary hoe it twice. Now most of us only got rotary hoed once because it's not raining and there's nothing out here. And then he makes two passes with the buffalo. This year only made one, but you see where the shovel went through the middle of the row. Everybody talks about your shovels pruning off of corn roots. You notice they didn't hit next to the row. They got a big old sweep, one big sweep that's 20 some inches wide, but the points into the ground, and when that went through, it must have smeared it below and got the weeds to grow in the middle. That he'll be able to clean up right now, but see, he wasn't even gonna cultivate until it started to rain, and all of a sudden, that turned green within the last week. There was nothing in there before that, so why would he run through and cultivate? So now, I tell people, that's a free green manure crop you're looking at, there's a plant diversity out there. See, us organic guys don't need to buy cocktail mixes of cover crops. We grow our own without buying them. Lambs, quarters, pigweed, foxtail, you name it, we got it. 
Now we go after the giant ragweed and we go after the jimson weed. I kind of pulled out some of the jimson weed along the end here. So this will clean up pretty good. Our farm, by the way, normally averages about 175 bushel corn. I'm not saying that's the greatest in the country. We don't have the greatest land. We've had some yields measured over 300 bushel on our better land. It, I, was a, I was a project on corn varieties numbers years ago with the University of Wisconsin. And, uh, but normal 175 bushel corn, and then we do about 35 to 40 bushel rye. And so I was really involved with the project. I said, you want to feed the world? You know Walter Goldstein, you know Walter, and his variety of corn he's been trying to breed for 25 years. I planted some a couple years ago, and I took my rye and his corn, and we made tortillas. See, this farm produces about 7 million pounds of corn and about 2 million pounds of rye. And that's the proportion we made tortillas. So this farm, this 1,500 acres, can feed every man, woman, and child in Wisconsin for one week a quarter pound of tortillas a day. <laughs> now, we want to feed the world. Not only that, it's very sustainable, very nutritious, high quality nutrition. I add your veggies and things to it, and you got to diet. And it's a no input system kind of, very low input kind of a system. So anyway, actually now I'm involved with Taliesin. We're supposed to be making whiskey at Willishimes. You see, they're always begging for money. And I tell everybody, I put all my money into agriculture. I'm not willing to put my money into restoration. But after being on the board for 10 years, I finally talked to, after four months arguing with lawyers, they were worried about getting sued if someone got sick on the liquor. If you get sick drinking liquor, you're gonna blame overconsumption. You're not gonna blame toxins for Christ's sake. So finally we got them to give approval. So Willishimes jumped into the game and they're gonna work with us. We're gonna make 10 barrels of whiskey. And so, the, and I said to Taliesin, that's a fundraiser. All the money is supposed to go to the restoration of Midway, which I've been trying to get done for 10 years. And so, but anyway, Willishimes are gonna make the liquor at just, at just covering some of their costs. I'm donating the rye. A $70 bottle of whiskey. How much money do you think the farmer gets out of it for the rye? 50 cents. Oh. The cork is more expensive than the rye that went to make the whiskey. So I said to Willis, don't you dare send me a bill. You can have the damn rye. <laughs> 50 cents a bottle. I said, I don't know. And then there's also bourbon they make. So there'll be some corn involved with it. So that's the project I got going over there to kind of promote some of the markets we have. So distilleries are one big market. Flour and then cover crops is probably where most of our seed gets to go. <laughs> I don't drink hard liquor very well, so I went up there and they brought out the bottles. And I felt obligated. Yeah, I, I, I did get it down. I did get it down. I don't drink hard liquor very well, but see. But anyway, well, yeah, they got some pretty. Their rye whiskey's been doing all right, so that's that's a nice project. We'll come back to the episode in a moment, but first, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Source from Sound Agriculture for supporting today's podcast. If you want to make your fertilizer plan more efficient, source it. Source from Sound Agriculture optimizes the amount of crop nutrition supplied by the microbes in your soil, providing 25 pounds of nitrogen and phosphorus per acre. It's cost-effective and easy to use. Just throw it in the tank and spray in season. If you want to unlock your crop's potential and increase ROI, there's only one answer, source it. Learn more at sound.ag. And now, let's get back to the episode. Now, our corn grain mostly goes to chickens, so we don't have to deal with it. Now, for, the, for them out there, we have not. Now, the food company over here that wants to buy all this 2 million pounds of rye flour, uh, they sent us the specs, and they, they malt a lot of that. So we were concerned because rye has an issue with germination. You, and they might want 95% germination. They didn't even ask about germination. I've sent ours in every year for 
for specks on uh, ergot. We never see any uh, DOM, all the vomitoxins, all those kind of things. And we've never had trouble getting it past. And so Sandy and I, Sandy from Purple Cow, you know, he farms over here by Oconomowoc. And him, him, he, he used to farm 400 acres. Now he's farming 2,000. I said, Sandy, there's one thing for sure. No more seven crops. You're going to get it down to two crops if you're farming alone. You can't do seven crops all by yourself on 2,000 acres. I'd like to see you pull it off. That's why my son can pull this off with just two crops. So I think we can make their standards. So Sandy's going to have some and we're going to have some here. So I grew a variety. We saved, and it's a really interesting story. I saved my own seed back every year, every year, every year. Wouldn't you think I'd have developed a variety that would like my soil in our farming? No. It went the other way. And finally, the germination went down and got to them poorer and poorer every year. And then I realized, what did my grandpa do? He went and bought some hybrid oats or some kind of oats every year. He bought a variety of oats and he, he'd plant a few acres of that and save that for seed. He never saved his own seed forever. A couple years and he'd go back and buy new stock. So it's really interesting. So now we got Ryman and Hazlitt varieties. And now I was over in Poland. You see, they dinkle rye comes from Poland. And some of their varieties, oh, they got like 10 different varieties over there. And actually, they're doing research on cattle over there. And they're doing research on the health benefits of rye. Rye is, see, they, when they took the antibiotics out of the hog diets in Denmark, they put rye in the diet and they no longer need antibiotics. Yeah, so it's got some health benefits. I tell people, if you get cancer and you go to Gerson Clinic in Mexico, stage four cancer, 100,000 Americans have been they're gonna put you on a real strict diet. The only flour you're gonna get is rye flour. And I've been asking why. And they make another product out of the pollen from rye called uh, Prasterize for your prostate health. So it's some nutritional, rye has not been altered in any way. It's still an old tough stuff that nothing can compete against it. You can plant it, Sandy planted the 16th of January of a calm walk. Now I'll show you our planting system. So, rye, 16th of January this year. When it was wet, and he's all alone on his 2,000 acres. He takes a fertilizer buggy and he bulk spreads it and he shallow worked it in. And he planted it so thick that now it's lodging. It all came up and it still did really well. We planted here in November. But we've changing our farming system all the time, trying to get it more efficient. Now, we used to work the land after corn harvest. We got shredder heads on the combine to shred the stalks. We work it lightly because we're going to cultivate. It'll be hilled a little bit level it out just slightly and then we used to drill rye in. Well, that's all gone. Now there's an air machine behind our tractor and we really like it. So it blows your seed out so it's not in rows anymore. I had an intern last summer, last spring, and I said to him, why is my clover in rows? It's not the clover that was in rows, it's the rye that was in rows and the clover couldn't compete against the rye. So it got to have its own rows because it couldn't grow in the rye rows. So now our rye is scattered out. First of all, they not, because if you plant real thick, they're gonna have finer stems as they get taller. And that's why the rolled crimp people plant 175 pounds of rye seed breaker. We plant about 75 with that air machine. And that's the, we got some fields where you're setting equipment up. If you're going over there toward our farm on Highway 130, you'll notice a field of rye that's going down. That's because Nick was setting up the equipment that got planted way too heavy. And then you double the rate, on, you get up to 100 and some pounds of rye, and you're gonna, it'll be flat because they get real tall and spindly. So we're trying to get us one that grows shorter and stockier and all those kind of things. So anyway, yeah, it's not a pretty crop this year, but didn't get any rain. So we'll go down there and stop at the rye. You can have blueberries on the way back. You gotta get your exercise first. Isn't that amazing? The first year is at Savannah, there's not a weed in the fields, not a weed grows. And it's been so many chemicals out there, and now we've limed it, we'll put some more lime on it this year. In about three years, that farm will be solid damn weeds. Because they've been waiting for their chance. Now, if we walk along here, you can step and take a look and see, this was the 
Seal rye, it puts a pretty nice head on it. Now what's really happening after several years, one year soil building and clover, and the next year corn, our nitrogen levels are building up in our soil. And as our nitrogen levels build up in our soil, our rye starts doing better all the time. And so uh, this was planted, like I said, 75 pounds an acre. If you look at it, it's not in a row. It's just bulk spread and put in there with our, with our we follow the tillage tool behind our air seeder. And uh, we're more interested in the underseeding. Because as dry as it was, we thought all the clover and things would die, but that's not what happened. Now the field at our home farm that we irrigate, the cover crop is neck and neck with the rye. See, the trouble is we didn't get this rye planted until the end of November, so it didn't grow much last fall. So now when we combine, because we can combine faster, they can haul the grain away. So my son will be combining the corn, and the end of the field will set the air seed and the tillage hole. So the same day it's combined, be worked, and the rye will be planted. They'll be scattered out over time, but we'll be planting first part of November instead of the end of November. Now we want to get it about that tall in the fall, so then when you frost seed, the rye is ahead of the clover. If it was raining all the time, the clover would be neck and neck with this rye. Also for erosion. Yes, yes, that's right. We, uh, and now that gets tilled up and then this gets erosion sake and getting a cover crop on the ground. Now it comes up, but it wasn't much there until spring when it really took off. We've never had rye fail. And I said, it's just that we got, we're getting planted too late we were because of the weather, but yeah. So now we like the way it's transitioning and we'll get that fall done. And then in the first week in, uh, March, the end of February, he'll go out and frost seed. We just got a, he's got a big grain thing on the back of his side by side. He can seed 25 acres in the morning before it gets muddy on frozen ground. Going 25 miles an hour with that frost seeder, spinning it on. That thing holds about 3,000 pounds and across the fields he goes with it. And so anyway, you can get a lot of seed. So it's just, we used to do a blend, a four-way blend. I had uh, red clover, white clover, crimson clover, and alfalfa. The crimson clover never did really well. Red clover dominates, and now this year we took the alfalfa out because that didn't compete very well. We put sweet clover in. Now the sweet clover is the problem. I want a big tap root. I want a rhizome root. So I got different root systems. So I said three different clovers because they got different rooting systems. And the sweet clover really, really took off. And I'm a little nervous about that baby because that, but that's going to have a big tap root system because we, we do run shallow incorporating residues, but if it's a wet, muddy year, we also got inline rippers. We got a ripper that just cuts slots in the ground and picks the soil back up if we compact it. Now we try to stay everything on uh, 12 row equipment. So everything is all wheel track, all 30 feet wide with everything except the combines are not. And so, but, and the tillage tools when we get done with this and the, this will just be, this will now after it's combined, we'll just leave it until about the end of, of August and then it'll get flail mowed down, everything stays. And then another crop will grow. Now some years we didn't flail mow, we just let it grow and the clover got this big and then it killed itself. So now we flail mow it, then, so we get, the clover is here now, and some years it's going to be like this. Most years, this year, the moisture is not. And so then we get that growth, plus the rye straw, and then we get the growth that takes place by the end of August. There'll be another crop this tall. And then come winter, it'll be this tall going into winter. And then next spring, when it gets this tall, we'll take it down. So we don't plant mammoth red clover. We plant freedom and high expensive four cut red clovers. We want four cuttings out of that red clover in that one year. And then you can't do that with mammoth as a two cut system. And so we got freedom and other better genetics. The question was, how did rye perform in a dry year? And that's what I said to say, at our home farm, if you drive by, we got 100 acres under irrigation. Savannah Institute north of Spring Green, that's 100 acres under irrigation. And it doesn't get the corners. You cannot drive by our farm and pick out where we watered and where we didn't. The only thing you can see difference is the cover crop. The clover is much bigger where we watered, but the rye, oh, this stuff is tough. 
And that's why in Poland, and that's why places where they didn't have any money on their sandy soils, that's why they did rye instead of wheat. Wheat would be all dead and dying up if as dry as we were, but rye, we can't even see the difference when we pump the water. It's a tough old buzzard. Our whole thing is right now, uh, we got this rye revival. Until I got a market for rye, so if we get 35 bushel rye, 30 to 40 bushel rye is all we really care for. I'm more interested now. Guys have said, oh, why don't you plant it thicker and get 50 bushel? I said, for $10 a bushel more, and I don't even have a market, 10 bushel at $10 a bushel is $100 an acre. You want me to harvest this, till it all up, and plant a cover crop when I already got one? Why would I want to do extra tillage? And so there's not enough money in rye to do that. So we're going to keep our planting rates really low because we want that underseeding until I get a better market. Even then, our rye yields are going up because of our carryover of nitrogen. Our nitrogen levels are building higher and higher and higher. I showed pictures last year at my winter meetings where after three years of doing this, you can see right to the line, the rye the next year is greener and taller than where we didn't have the cover crops. And that's following corn. So the corn should have sucked out quite a bit of ant, but we're building up our nitrogen levels in our soil. So as we walk along, you can kind of look in there, you'll see our cover crop's not pretty, but it's there. And now that we got rain, I think it's even there in, in spring green on the, on the sandy soil. The cover crop survived fairly well. Now what we'll do is, we're, that's why we don't want this to lodge and kill our cover crop, because then we got to go do something. But what we do have is, a, we'll just take a regular grain drill with single disc, double disc openers rather. If it lodges or there's bad spots, we'll just take a drill and go out there and fill those in. And we'll normally do that in August, and we'll normally take uh, forage oats, peas and radish in the grain drill, if and only if the cover crop is not there. We aren't gonna leave it without a cover crop. So we got to, Michael Dolan took some of the hay from back here, that's where we're gonna walk next. And uh, I did a measurement of how much carbon and how many nutrients we took off the soil. If I charge you for the minerals that you hauled away and I charge you for the carbon you hauled away, you can't afford my hay or straw. I said, everybody says, well, you need livestock? I said, no, we're feeding now. All this goes to our soil livestock. What we got here, and that's the other word when we get back to, we're gonna talk about the rye straw in here is a soil building complex carbon. The clover is your fertilizer. Yes. So you got I'm a dairy nutrition guy. You got if you're gonna grow cover crops, you need to put one more word into your vocabulary. That's called digestibility. You can't, someone said, I love my hairy vetch. I had this discussion at the university. My hairy vetch was this big and I had all those nitrogen credits. My crop looks terrible. I said, you might have a lot of nitrogen credit, but it's not digestible. Feed it to your milk cow, see how much milk you get. If you'd have taken it down when it was this tall, you'd have fertilizer. It's highly digestible. So you've got to manage your cover crop. If you just want to build soil carbon, you'd let it get mature. But we want to grow a crop. So we got this combination. This straw will all be gone by next year. That's all digested down, but we'll flow, flail mow that later. But yeah, if you're really behind, we are going to bail a little bit at home. We have in the past, we grazed some at home and we also bailed up the straw. Uh, but that's next to the farm where the, all the cattle are. We can get manure back out there. And neither one of those made the crop any better the next year. I think it's a horse apiece. I think you're trading, if you took this off and, and you had manure that you could bring back on it, you're do, doing a trade off a little bit. And, uh, and like I said, we grazed it in the fall and got milk off it. And you gotta look at the dollars you get. That might be feasible if you had your livestock and things out. You gotta realize we're in this 50 mile circle and there's no way we could have cattle here, even with collars on them, even with collars on them. <laughs> Gary, how much uh, manure are you putting on? We put on the compost uh, on one ton to the acre except at the home farm where all the cattle were, we're down to a thousand pounds an acre. And now on the Savannah Institute farm north of town, that'll be two to three tons. We're still trying to build the numbers. And that, I tested my compost last year and the numbers came back so perfect, I'm afraid to test it again. <laughs> so it was really high quality compost. They said, we turn it with a payloader. 
we got big windrows out here and we put the chicken manure in it and we turn it with a payloader and we might get some liquid from uh, anaerobic digesters because that's got a lot of biology in it because I make fertilizer in Indiana on the back of an anaerobic digester and so it's got a lot of a lot of benefits coming out of anaerobic digester that manure so we might use that to if we need a liquid source for our compost. Gary, why do you plant rye instead of uh, wheat? Well, because plant, last day of planting wheat is when? The first week in October. When did we plant this? The end of November. Now, I realize that. So someone said, what about triticale? Well, that's the middle of October is your last planting date. Wow, we're not going to be harvested in November. So there is no, it's the only crop left is one you're looking at. After corn. After corn. This is it. This is it. After soybeans, you might be able to sneak in wheat or something. And, but... That's why we're a two-farm system. This is the only one that works. Big thanks to Gary Zimmer for today's presentation. The full transcript of the episode will be available at CoverCropStrategies.com podcasts. Don't forget to watch out for part two of this presentation coming soon. Many thanks to our sponsor, Source from Sound Agriculture, for helping to make this Cover Crop podcast series possible. And from all of us here at Cover Crop Strategies, I'm McCain Vogel. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.